guys, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff Upshaw. My name's Tucker, a non-union insurance adjuster. Fantastic. And we are coming to you live from Times Square, New York. Um, that's not true. We're not in Times Square, New York. We are coming at you, though, from my studio, where we have acquired somewhat of a holy grail item, Tucker has led me to understand. Right. I think this is um, part of the reason why... Times Square came to your mind because you think the glitz and the glamour and what can be more glitzy and glamorous than these Lady Gaga Oreos that we are going to try. We are so hip and timely. We might even have a TikTok account. Look at us go. So let's just kind of do this in real time and see what happens from a uh, from a content perspective. Can I get a little ASMR on that package opening? Yeah, right. Like the first thing to note here is it's somehow more difficult to find the tab to open this thing. And looking at these, go on, take one. All right, I'll, I'll um, grab one of these bad boys out here. Yeah, no, they, they're they pink. The cookie portion is pink, and the icing is green. Um, so the, from a flavor perspective, are these supposed to be different than standard Oreos, or are they just Well, I don't think there's a colors. chocolate component. I think it's more like if you were to compare it to anything, my understanding would be it's, it's a golden Oreo, uh, but okay. it might... Maybe the coloring makes it different. I don't know. All I know is that this is the uh, cookie that uh, has the gay gene in it. And, you know, so... And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, you know, if I'm eating a cookie... And, and we have isolated it, by the way. We have found the gay gene. Yeah, so um, we're proving it's it's not a choice. And it's in this cookie. <laughs> it's in this cookie. And we're going to try it and uh, see if it's worth it, you know? All right, cheers. Okay. Okay. Mm, it's fine. <laughs> um, I will say for how colorful it is, I expected like a different flavor experience than I got. It tastes like a golden Oreo. Well, it it doesn't quite. I mean, I I think is it just me or is the cookie a little bit crunchier than it's your crisper? Tip? Yeah, exactly. Right, and I mean it's it's. Definitely, yeah, it is a golden Oreo, essentially. That's the closest to any pre-existing variety of Oreo that one has. It's different. It's not worse, but it's not particularly an improvement. It's just, I mean, if it looked like a golden Oreo and, like, there was no coloring and you ate it, you would you would definitely notice that there's something up with it, but it's not... It's not reinventing the Oreo in so many words. And, you know, to be fair, I don't feel like it was billed as such. It's a Lady Gaga Oreo. And the fact that there's even a very distinguishable difference in, you know, albeit texture or a slight amount of flavor from your standard garden variety Oreo, I think is a success on their part. So, And I'm curious, now that I've done this, it's only now occurring to me to ask, why is there... A Lady Gaga Oreo? Why is there a Lady... Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, go off, queen, I, I guess. Mean, I, like, I mean, sure. she's making money, fine. It's, it's marketing, I, I guess. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying this. Like, Lady Gaga's fine, whatever. It's just, is she, like, donating money to something? And she thought, hey, let us let me make a branded Oreo cookie with Nabisco, and we will take it and <laughs> donate it to... So Lady Gaga fans are monsters, Right. And so the front page of Google when I typed in and asked about the Lady Gaga Oreos is that her little cookie 
monsters. So oh, no. it, it would seem even the, the algorithm, that's how establishment this phenomenon is, that it's baked into the answers on uh, Google. <laughs> baked, because it's a cookie. Jeez. I'm now just thinking if Cookie Monster was a Lady Gaga stand. <laughs> Implying that Cookie Monster is not a Lady Gaga stand. He's, he's, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. We'll put it that way. Um, he might be a little bit a little bit reserved about it yeah but so it's apparently it's like about like the chromatic album or whatever so it's all just it's just pr marketing stuff it's not like a a declaration of any kind but i mean i yeah i'd say like a seven or eight out of ten oreo experience i'd have another i, I think it's seven good. or eight like what are we like what's the benchmark on that you know that's a great question i just wanted to throw a solid highball number like out. i get it you enjoyed the experience but i'm just <laughs> i'm just thinking it's like I, there, I would definitely choose this over several different varieties I would choose of Oreo. This, I would actually choose this over a standard Oreo because I like the snap of the cookie better. Fair enough. I mean, the fact that it's not chocolatey, I think, confuses the equation a little bit. Would I choose this over a regular Oreo? Probably, but simply because I prefer golden Oreos to begin with. Oh, that's a hot take. Would I, yeah, I mean, I like chocolate, but golden Oreos are just really tasty. Would I choose Fair. this over a regular golden Oreo? Eh, probably not. It'd be interesting if someone made double stuff. Ooh, uh, double stuff. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> there's a very clear understanding as to why it was not built that way. I, and that's all I will know, say about that. I, I didn't mean it that way. This is, <laughs> it just happened. Okay. I'm complimenting her cookie. What more do what you more? can't say you're complimenting a woman's cookie, Tucker? Oh my god! Ah no! I, 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 no, seriously. <sighs> and this is why we could never be shock jocks, right? Because um, it's we would be saying this, but without the certain degree of like self consciousness. And this is also why we don't have an HR department, not yet, at least. It, it forthcoming, forthcoming for sure. It's, um, it's needed. So, as you might have guessed, this is an entertainment, movie, generally pop culture podcast. And what what a better way to start an audio medium than with some prop work. I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's gone over real well. So, this week I have in my media exploits, I so I'm not like a massive true crime fanatic like I listen to a couple of true crime podcasts and so forth, but I was kind of intrigued by the uh new documentary it's like a little four-part series on netflix called night stalker mm -hmm. and so we both consumed that this week actually right. um first of all i would like to say it was not a story that i was overly familiar with given that i'm you know at least kind of on the sphere of knowing some of these prolific serial killers and so mm -hmm. i this was before our time right. really so it was interesting to get to hear kind of a new one i suppose I I had known, you know, a bit about Richard Ramirez here and there, though my biggest question about this has nothing to do with the Richard Ramirez aspect of this documentary at all. I was just struck and I wanted to know, how come both of the cops in this series sound like the MyPillow guy? That's the real hard-hitting cinema journalism that you're going to get here at the Daily Brain Bleed. It, it, it's funny because it's like a weird audio illusion going on here that they sound different from another from one another and yet somehow equally like Mike Lindell. <laughs> See, I kind of got more of a like diabetes vibe, like a little <laughs> bit. Like I kind of expected one of them to look at the screen and just barrel the just diabetes. So 
you know, fair enough. I think we both had some uh, some input there on uh, <laughs> the, the vocal stylings of our two uh, real people there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, from an actual documentary standpoint, given that it's about a serial killer, the thing that I found at least even mildly novel about the whole premise was that we don't really talk about Richard Ramirez until the last episode. Right. And, you know, the first three, it's it's a victim's first approach where you're kind of more so going through it in real time with the detectives kind of trying to figure it out. And so I hadn't seen like a lot of that mm-hmm. in that sphere. So I thought that was at least, you know, it made it a little different, and a little more compelling than your average, you know, we're going to focus literally on Marilyn Manson for five seasons kind of thing. <laughs> Not that that media exists, but you get what I'm saying. Did did you say Marilyn Manson when you I meant totally Manson? meant Charles Manson? Yep. I mean, I'm I suppose you could do something kind of sort of like that for him now, Marilyn. That is, given all the uh, the accusations yeah, that are, yeah, that yeah, are yeah. coming out, that was accidentally timely. <laughs> there you go, there you go. But I but I had to ruin it, didn't I? Um, it was fine. Um, I'm speaking, of course, about Night Stalker. It. I, I agree with you, Jeff. I don't know if it added anything um, new to the true crime genre. It, I like a lot of these documentaries I that, whatever the topic, I was staying up late one night and doing whatever, and I just wanted something on in the background, and on HBO there was this Bee Gees documentary of all things. And I just had it on and I found it to be incredibly interesting because it's one of these documentaries that yes, on a surface level talks about the, uh, topic, but it also kind of used it as a springboard to explore, um, certain things like the evolution of the disco genre, how it started in the New York club scene, how there was a backlash to it, all that sort of thing. And it kind of ties it into the story of these, group of guys here and that's what i find most that you can really do with a documentary that in a lot of ways you can synthesize a variety of different topics into one single narrative and it's kind of like you know with night stalker obviously it's important to get a victim's perspective and but as far as the actual information it's one of those things where you can get the highlights by reading a couple of Wikipedia articles, I think. Yeah. And well, and a, a complaint that I had, like, and you know, again, so complaint is maybe not so the right word, but it's just when you're putting this up into the entire milieu of documentary, uh, the genre, you know, like you're going to have some comparisons in some areas where it lacks and so forth. And I had recently, I think it was last year, I watched uh, Wild Wild Country, mm. which is fantastic. The whole thing start to finish is just wild. so well done, both from like a storytelling perspective, but then also like more nerdy wise from like an actual cinematography perspective. Like it is beautifully shot all of like the, the kind of in-between footage and the interviews and everything. It just it looks very professional and high budget and Mm. like for the most part for night stalker we just had the two dudes sitting in a bar kind of looking vaguely like they were being interviewed for a sears catalog in early (laughs) 2000s and so you know that's not to disparage anybody working on the film or anything but it's just you know it there was a level of artistry that was left on the table i think and even again beyond the artistry it's they vaguely hint at certain points about oh man, this is kind of an LA story and oh man, look at these lured things that he was into. But it, 
never really kind of contextualizes Richard Ramirez in what it was like to be in L.A. during the 1980s beyond vague references to crime rates and everything. But again, it just doesn't really talk about why specifically this was a Southern California story. It just kind of it kind of dangles out the references to Satanism and everything, but doesn't really talk about like the weird psychosphere and everything. And why at that time that was such a pile driver the for satanic people. Panic. It was a live wire. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, I, it, the promotional material alluded as such to kind of this underbelly of SoCal at the time and then it never we never really dive into the counterculture. In the last episode, we look briefly at the people, you know, the women who had sent lots of photos and mm. love mail to this convicted heinous killer. Well, he wasn't convicted at the time they were sending it, but you get what I mean. Mm. And, you know, it's like we don't really dive into that psychosis at all. It's just like, well, that's a thing that happened and they shouldn't have done it. And it was bad. And it's like, that's very surface, you know, like, obviously, we can gather that he was a monster. But like. It's funny. This wasn't a documentary film. This was just long enough that you could call it a miniseries, but there weren't that many episodes. It's just yep. long enough that they're, they present a bunch of details, but not quite so long that they actually explore a lot of these topics in any great level of depth. And that's like a problem, I think, with a lot of Netflix content. And I don't know if this is just something they acquired out of whatever, but oftentimes when I see a Netflix um, anything of any genre, scripted or whatever, my complaint is always, man, this is a season of television, like 10 episodes that really could have been wrapped up in six or whatever. And this is one of the few times when I'm thinking, this actually could have been a little bit longer. Yeah, they, could they could have run with it a little bit because mm-hmm. I would have excused kind of the um, the Ken Burnsian like, you know, we have a lot of just photos and we're panning across them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But like I could have excused some of that lack of production value if we'd really gone way more for content. But we didn't we kind of skimped both. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I, I agree with you. I could have used another episode or two really digging into that. Because, I mean, I think the amount of, like, witnesses and survivors and stuff that they had on there was fine in terms of a numbers perspective. And, like, they got some interesting people to be on camera, but it just, mm-hmm. you know, I think it fails to congeal in any really true moving way mm-hmm. in so many words. Like, it was interesting, and I don't regret watching it at all, but, you know, it just, it, it left me Jones in a little bit like I wanted to have a cigarette afterwards or something. <laughs> I guess our consensus would be that you know, if you're a true crime junkie, this will probably do it for you, but don't expect any revolution here. You know? Yeah, if you're not into the genre at all and you're looking for something to watch purely for entertainment value and good production and stuff like that, eh, you know, maybe try the first episode and see how you feel, but you might take a miss on this one, um, just kind of honestly. Now, speaking of Netflix, though, I saw another movie on Netflix recently, but I only saw it. And I'm glad that I saw this one. I liked it a lot better. But I only saw it because it was part of the capital D discourse, right? Okay, okay. Oh, yeah. And the discourse at this time of year, it's that time of the year that we're always talking about award season chatter. Who got nominated, who didn't get nominated, who shouldn't have gotten nominated, who should have gotten nominated for the Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, that sort of thing. And the fact that we've had a massive pandemic that's kind of 
grown. Wait, wait are we in a pandemic? I hadn't. Nobody told me. Yeah, I know. But I'm saying, yeah, if you were paying attention to the award season (laughs) chatter, you almost wouldn't know because that's still it's still happening. And so the Golden Globe nominations were recently released. And I thought, you know, this was always a good opportunity for me to get caught up in what some of the stuff that I just missed uh, anyway. And but there was a lot of anger over certain nominees that were seemingly absent, seemingly should have been nominated. And some of them I wanted to check out, but I didn't think we would be able to do it in a time frame before, you know, when we recorded next. Sure. Like I heard um, uh, I Could Destroy You or I May Destroy You was a good HBO series, but I just didn't have the time um, between this. But something that we did have time to do was watch on Netflix The Five Bloods. And I got to say, snub... Kind of, you know, it's a relative term in the sense that, okay, are you saying it was more or less deserving of a nomination than any other film? And we can get back to that, but I will just say on face value, I really enjoyed this movie. So you texted me a a good couple days before we were uh, recording today, and you said, hey, you know, this is a movie that I'm thinking about and that I watched, and, you know, you should watch it to consider, you know, for the podcast, whatever. And so I clicked onto the Netflix thumbnail, and I was like... Okay, here we go. Like I, <laughs> I've I've seen a lot of your standard, you know, kind of uh, menagerie of Vietnam films, and granted, all of those are from a very white perspective. But you know, so I'm I've read a bunch of books about the time period in history and whatever, and so like it's it's point blank not my favorite. Mm-hmm. And so going into it, I was like, this will be an experience and it really took me honestly about an hour hour and a half into the film which runs about like what 235 240 something Something and it took me about a full 90 minutes to actually become genuinely invested i will say it really picks up at around the time which they find the gold but let's come back to that it's funny because again this is not a movie that i saw before the controversy but then when i saw there's a little bit of controversy i thought you know what i have some free time let's check out this film let's see what all the fuss is about and but i'd heard a little bit about it beforehand and i thought it was supposed to be a more conventional vietnam movie like an actual movie <laughs> that the bulk of it was set during the war back in the late 60s early 70s and i'd heard a little bit of the controversy around and this isn't even a controversy it's just people bitching about Spike Lee's ascetic choice to like not cast younger versions of the actors for the flashback scenes, but it makes more sense. I'm glad somebody talked about that because that was weird for me. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense in the context of this not being a movie that the bulk of it is set in the past. It's about a bunch of old guys remembering the past. That's just it. This film is primarily set in the present day, roughly the present day with uh, several Vietnam vets. They are going to retrieve some gold that they had buried uh, back in Vietnam during the war. And which was originally promised to a group of what, like a native group of people on our in Vietnam that was fighting on behalf. Yeah, they weren't the cause. So they weren't taking paper money, but they were taking gold. So, but shenanigans, yeah, so forth and so shenanigans on. happen and that gets lost, but they think, Hey, we know where it is and let's go back and grab it. And we will, uh, be able to make literally millions of dollars. And as you say, it's impossible to not look at this from the racial perspective. All of the GIs <laughs> were black. And so what, what's funny is 
that um, I read a little bit about the production development of this film. And this, you can tell how at his bare bones, there was really an opportunity for this to become a much more generic movie because before Spike Lee came on, it wasn't even necessarily about uh, black GIs. It could have been anybody. And the basic plot is not that complicated or profound. It was just, hey, let's go get this gold that we had in Vietnam. But he definitely recontextualized a lot of it in from the perspective of a very specific uh, black GI experience and a very, you know, he definitely meshed it with Black Lives Matter and a lot of the other yeah. stuff that's kind of been going on more recently. And obviously you can look to other people to probably get more meaningful perspective on it sure. that than us. But again, it's just worth mentioning that you can kind of see beneath all that how it, you know, the script's original life as pretty much just a generic kind of heist movie, honestly. And how it evolved from there after Spike Lee came yeah. on board. And, you know, to, to be fair, you know, do I think that we're going to offer anything in terms of great, profound perspective in terms of viewing, you know, like the black GI experience and everything? No, obviously you can find that in other places. Right. But, you know, I think it, it does warrant mentioning when discussing the film because you'd be missing yeah. so much context and just everything in terms of, you know, you have all of these prominent cutaways to powerful uh, black figures from the time. And, you know, there's a lot of like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quotes. There's some mm. Malcolm X in there. And so Bobby Seal. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a there's a lot of that. And, you know, like we could we could sit and, you know, diatribe and go off about how, you know, like how important that is and how culturally significant that is and how like timely it is at mm. present. But again, I think that's a discussion for, you know, but we can still um, assess it as a movie and not only as a movie, but as a movie part of Spike Lee's filmography. And we were kind of discussing this beforehand, just going through, I like Spike Lee, Spike Lee as a director. And I think he has, done a lot of movies that I have liked. Uh, he's done a lot of movies that I've not liked so much, but it's really underrated the degree to which he's kind of a Woody Allen figure, not in the weird way, but in the, <laughs> but in the sense that he's been pretty steadily churning out films for about 30 years now. He's not a guy like Terrence Malick who makes a movie and then has to go live in a monastery for 10 years before he works up the energy to do another movie. Now he's consistently turning out material. And of course, some of that's going to be good. Some of that's going to be bad, but he's a productive guy. And And to that point, I really only became familiar with Spike Lee as a director in the last couple of years. Like I saw black Klansman and I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh my God, like such a good, uh, such a good film. And that kind of like put him on my radar because realistically it was just, it was kind of a blind spot for me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, going back and looking through his, um, you know, his list of films and getting kind of an idea for how long he's been at this. Like, yeah, no, it's crazy how prolific the dude's been. It's insane. Sure. And, and the reason I I felt the need to um, contextualize that is because there are a lot of um, elements within this movie that if you've seen earlier Spike Lee movies, you can see the connection. I think that especially in recent years, he's, and I don't think this is uh, a bad thing. I think this adds a lot of texture to it. He has, definitely been leaning more and more on interspersing clips and pictures of historical events 
with his movies. And, and again, it, uh, and not even so much historical stuff, but actual news, actual, like what footage of Donald Trump talking yeah. at a rally. <laughs> I will say it's, it's funny because the guy in question is a psychopath, but I think this might in a weird way be the most sympathetic portrayal of a Trump supporter in the past couple years in media. Well, and they, there was a lot of talking and a lot of references about someone being a Tom and someone mm-hmm. being like, uh, like an Uncle Tom and so forth and so on. Just real quick, let's just the the felon question played by Delroy Lindoy, Delroy Lindo, and the performances in this film across the board are great, yeah. but his monologue just oh, straight to the my viewer. God, yes. that, that, that's one yeah. of those moments like, you know, if you're on your phone or whatever, you're looking up and you're watching. You're like, wow, wow. Uh, but to go back to kind of other parts of Spike Lee's filmography, I, I think he historically has been weaker than some other directors in filming combat. And he did a World War II film, The Miracle at St. Anna. And I was never a fan of that. I, I saw it a while ago and I thought it was just okay. And I thought it, it was weird. The actual flashbacks to Vietnam uh, conflict that he shot were, they were fine. I, I could get what he was going at with the stylization, but I couldn't get into it too much. But the actual present tense battle scenes, I mean, uh, action scenes were very, impre- very brutal, but very impressive. Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, a few spoilers, obviously, but um, when one of the gentlemen steps on a landmine mm-hmm. and is blown absolutely to smithereens, that was that was very troubling to watch. That oh, was yeah. really hard. Um, and we were talking about when they were finding the gold earlier, when they were digging for gold, right, when they accidentally stumbled across some. Yeah. And the fella comes in and he has um, the the metal detector every second there. I was like, oh, no. They're gonna yeah, come. somebody's going to go up. Yeah, someone's going to go up. It, it was actually really tense, even though they were all they, they were happy and the music was triumphant yeah. and all that. And then they found uh, the remains of uh, their buddy who died in the war. And you're thinking, oh, no, is this going to be? And so in that moment, there was all that tension. And then, boom, uh, <laughs> the guy blows up when you are absolutely not expecting it. That was incredibly effective, I think. Well, and I think that that just goes to trying to put you in the mindset of someone who was you know walking around in vietnam you just there's always this background process of well there might be something under my foot that will cause me to die a horrible painful death Mm -hmm. but you never know and like that i thought that was a very powerful way of giving you the sensation in in you know just like a very small part um the what was i gonna say a lot of the so the the gentleman that we're talking about that was the trump supporter uh, mm-hmm. character name let me get his t- character name character name was dave dave okay um you can double check that if you want i'm 90 percent sure it started with a d but like it was dave or dan or something it was i believe it was dave he um throughout the film he's he sports a make america great again hat mm-hmm. which the fact that so first of all just putting that in there directly just here's the red hat like that's great and mm-hmm. that he didn't shy away from like you know oh it's kind of uh you know, like a half signal. Can I stop you right yeah. here? Yeah. He was Paul. His son was a Dave. Paul. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, hi, I'm Paul. That's it. That's the joke. So him with the, with the MAGA hat 
and it getting kind of passed off to his mm-hmm. eventual killer right. and it becoming this kind of very contentious thing. Because the other thing that I think this film does really well is display Americans abroad and the dynamics that occur mm-hmm. between Americans and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically like the, the Frenchman in the mm-hmm. film, like both the businessman Frenchman and then the bomb diffusing people. And then mm-hmm. also the local Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, it's, it's just really well done and well-written in terms right. of how they kind of have some oversights. The people have some oversights. It's just well done. And if you want to look at it from the perspective of intersectionality, it really does kind of drive home how, yes, these guys were absolutely oppressed by their own government at home, but to a lot of the local Vietnamese people, they didn't see it. They were, they were the oppressors, right? You had this scene, this very uncomfortable scene where they're uh, passing this guy in the boat who tries selling them a chicken, but then is uh, screaming at them, not racial abuse, but you're the GIs who killed my family and all that sort of thing. And it um, triggers a PTSD reaction in Paul and obviously a lot of the fellows in this movie, they struggle with mental health issues as a result of their time in combat. So it, it, it plays to that nuance, that nuance in a way that I think makes the film more rich. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there are so, so many layers to it because you have several of the vets who are on Oxycontin from the VA. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like that's a whole conversation. That's a whole movie. Right. The, the, the opioid epidemic. But he mm-hmm. adds it in. It's just this layer and it makes the characters so deep. Um and, you know, very realized and it's, fully. It's, again, part of the uh, way that I said earlier that this movie honestly portrays a more sympathetic uh, portrayal of the average Trump voter. And, yes, the the very fact that he's a person of color arguably means he's not a typical Trump voter. But, yes, Spike Lee obviously is not someone who's going to be sympathetic to Trump, but he has the, the guy who is a Trump supporter in this movie he obviously has had a lot of troubles in his life. He obviously, um, and so it kind of it kind of gives you a glimpse into a world where it's understandable why someone in his position might be sympathetic to some of what Trump is selling, regardless of whether you are or not. Obviously, so let's tie that back in a little bit. Excuse me to the award season snub. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, war films in general have a tendency to get nominated for things. That's mm-hmm. just a fact, right? You make right. a war film and it's probably going to go up for something. I mean, do, do we really want to say just outright that it's about race? I think it's it, there are a lot of things going for it and going against it. One thing that I think a lot of people need to realize and is that the, the people who hand out the Golden Globes are literally the Hollywood foreign press, which is like three dozen guys who are all old and decrepit. And it's not a representative sample, even of like critics or anything. It's just like three guys, but it gets inflated as this important thing because it happens right before uh, the Academy Awards. And it gives you an idea of what's going on there. Um, It is a war movie, but I think in its heart, it's more of, one of these kind of post-war action movies. And I think there's a distinction. It's in a lot of ways, more like many of the Rambo movies in the sense of like, you have this guy who is a Vietnam veteran, but he's going back for some unfinished business. Um, I mean, 
I've, I find that so surface though. Like, yes, but that's not really what it's about. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. what happens, and, but it's not what it's about. And again, it kind of goes back to, you can see how the script was there for maybe a more generic movie, but Spike Lee really recontextualized what was going on here. And part of the problem with declaring and, and look, if I was king of the universe, would I give this movie a bunch of recognitions? Yes. But you always have to view this in the context of everything else uh, going on in any given year, what other movies were released. And I've got to say that I've maybe part of it was pandemic, but maybe it was part of stuff in my life that would have existed regardless. But I've done a much worse job in this past year of just keeping up with what's going on in the movie world. Because I remember in the last Academy Award season, even before the ceremony, I saw Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman. Um, I saw movies that arguably should have been nominated, like Uncut Gems or My Name is Dolomite, all those sorts of things. I was really, you know, keep... So when people were... I saw 1917. So the point is when people were arguing, oh, this movie should have gotten nominated and this movie should not have or this movie should have won or should not have won. I had some basis to have an opinion and it's hard to this year when so much of the audience is missing out on what's happening. And even if it is up on Netflix, I think that one of the underrated aspects of putting a movie in theaters, even in a world of widely express accessible streaming is that you can have your big um, release push. You have your big release campaign yeah. and all of that. And that creates kind of the secondary media that leads people to be aware of this movie and see it. And you can kind of sort of do that with uh, just putting a movie on Netflix, but not really. It's, it's not the same. I mean, you know, I remember, I mean, if Joker was announced today and it was going to come out on pick a, pick a streaming service, I would be kind of excited for it, mm-hmm. but not in the way that I was excited to go to a theater and have the have the night out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's harder to make a make a day of it in so many words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that definitely has affected, you know, sort of film viewership and awareness and stuff. You know, exactly like you're saying, I haven't seen as much stuff this last year. And so not that I'm usually the type of person that has seen everything that's nominated for an award. My palate is not so refined, but <laughs> You know, I, I usually have at least heard of most of them. And mm. then, you know, this this year, I'm just like, oh, that mm. must have come out at some point. I wasn't paying attention. But again, it's hard to discuss a movie like this without talking about like I, I'm much more willing to unqualifiedly say that Delroy Lindo should have been nominated for he was, Oh, the performance was fantastic. Right. And and um, also, it must be said, you can't talk about this movie th- without saying this. This was one of Chadwick Boseman's last performances, yeah. obviously. And you get the sense that at least at the Oscars, they're probably going to give him a few nominations because he did a few movies this past year, kind of as, a, and not to take away from him, but it's kind of a Heath Ledger effect of, you know, when when an actor tragically passes before his time, there's definitely a, uh, and good God, this, he was suffering from such horrible cancer for for years now. And one way to put this into perspective is that he filmed all of his appearances as Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the exception of Civil War um, while suffering from this disease. And, and the fact that he's taken so many 
deeply physical roles, not only in these superhero movies, but in, in a movie like The Five Bloods. It, it just really puts into perspective how dedicated he was to his craft. And from that perspective alone, you know, the more that I talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, man, why didn't he get nominated for something, you know? Yeah, sure. And I mean, in terms of, you know, like who is actually making the choices and who's, you know, nominating things and so forth, it isn't representative. Mm -hmm. And one parallel that my mind is drawing at present moment is, you know, like a Grammy snub that happened recently. And that was uh, the weekend with, uh, Mm. With that whole album, I think the album's Blinding Lights. I think that was the title track, but I'm not sure. The the title track was Blinding Lights. Was that also the name of the album? Let's find out. Representational is always tricky because oftentimes we aren't talking so much about... We're talking about subjective things in a lot of ways when we talk about uh, representation. After, to clarify, After Hours was the name of the album. Okay. But I vaguely do remember this controversy because when we talk about representation... (laughs) I hate to be the bearer of bad statistics, but the thing is, if you just solely look at speaking roles and everything, however however you want to, no matter how you want to quantify it, African-Americans are not, in the most technical sense, underrepresented in American films and television. It roughly tracks to their percentage of the population. You would expect to see the number of characters here. It's really more a question this gets to a very subjective thing when we talk about representation is whether representation is good whether it um portrays um whether it's not feeding into stereotypes and that sort of thing and oftentimes this is a bit more of a tricky question than we would like to think because i remember someone sharing this article on social media recently it was something like here are 10 films uh, about um, the black experience in America that aren't about black trauma because it's very easy to have a movie that checks off all the boxes of having the correct politics, but still really not being a pleasant or meaningful uh, viewing experience for any. I remember a couple years back, there was a movie Detroit about the Detroit, more specifically some guys who were absolutely tortured at the hands of, of uh these detroit cops and again this is one of Mm -hmm. those movies that technically has the correct politics but it's not but it's still about a bunch of black guys getting tortured by cops without with without really offering much more beyond that and And that's there's similar like colloquially at least discourse in the lgbt community about like you know i enjoy seeing people in mm-hmm. the community portrayed in stories and having their stories told. But if we only tell the tragedies, mm-hmm. we're kind of missing the boat a little bit. It, it's one of those things where it's like the line between what's positive representation and negative representation is, well, it's incredibly, it's arbitrary, but on some level, if you have some sort of, if you're sharing some deeper truth and you have some deeper real life experience being conveyed in an honest way, it can go a lot toward that. It's kind of like how not long ago in the grand scheme of things, it was incredibly taboo for a lot of people in the Italian American community to even uh, talk about the mafia in any context. There was always kind of this idea that, you know, you could only talk about it in condemnation. And there was this idea that, um, filmmakers who were touching the topic were hurting the community (laughs) by doing so but 
Eventually, you have guys like Francis Ford, Francis Ford Coppola does Godfather, and Martin Scorsese does a bunch of crime movies, and eventually you have The Sopranos, which was, you know, written by an Italian guy. And it's one of those things where, yes, you're talking about um, the mafia, who are not good guys, but if you portray them in kind of like a well-rounded way that makes them out to be real people, it kind of it on some level neutralizes a lot of the, uh, the harm there and kind of shows, Hey, you know, these are well-rounded guys who, um, so you're saying there are good guys on both sides of the, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. On the, the on the, on the, uh, don't be an organized crime dude question. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So, I mean, wow. Representation is a, is a deep and multifaceted topic of which, by the way, as with many deep and multifaceted topics, there's not a right 100% check the box answer. Mm-hmm. There's what feels right for you and your viewpoint and your experience. And then there's what someone else may feel is right and correct for their experience. And part of it is experiencing that intersectionality and the awareness and everything that comes along with trying to live, you know, in the reality of, you know, the world that we live in with its historical context and everything mm-hmm. like that. Like, you know, these Vietnam vets moving through Vietnam were, you know, there's a scene where they are bought drinks by some former Viet Cong members. Mm-hmm. And Paul is very reticent to acknowledge the gesture, but everybody's like, hey, that's the past. We don't need, we're not fighting them anymore. The war is over. And so, you know, the, and then eventually he does recognize the gesture and they move forward. But like, the thing is there there is an objective view of that situation where it's like no bad reject and then there's a perspective that's like you know okay well we have to look at it in a more substantive context and i think that you know the rep- representation can be seen in, seen in a very similar light not trying at all is not the answer and then affirmative actioning every film that comes out of hollywood is not the right answer either it's going to be between those two things somewhere right mm-hmm. so I don't know. But this movie, for what it was, it, it obviously was much better than your traditional kind of action heist movie. And yeah, there, there is a reticence in Hollywood, even putting aside the question of race and social justice and everything to nominate for the very highest awards. These genre films, your action films, your pot boilers, your superhero movies, your horror movies, all that kind of thing, because no matter how good they are, unless they are truly transcendently good in some aspect or at the very least um, check off some very arbitrary uh, boxes, it's not going to get nominated. And well, I mean, I my thing is, if Spike Lee hadn't picked this film up, if it had just been what it was kind of originally kind of sort of written into and it was it didn't do any of the stuff that the film actually did of course we wouldn't be talking about it for this sure. pos- this position right and so like i think that saying oh well because at the like at the very bare bones level that's what this film is and then just ignoring all of the other masterful right. stuff because of that i think that does make it a snub in some regards right Maybe not because of overt racism, but because of mm-hmm. film industry elitism regarding mm-hmm. plot lines. Sure, like, sure, sure. And again, you can. There are two levels that you can talk about with snubs, and again, on the one level, you have to 
really go and say, okay, well, what movie shouldn't have been nominated or what movie shouldn't have won? And it's hard for me to even answer that question, but it's it's much easier to talk about, okay, these biases absolutely do exist, and you talk about what a movie's going up against when it's up for certain awards. So... I mean, that's that's a just a tasteful little discussion about some of the elements of a very complex film. I will say, can I just say real quick? Yeah, go for um, it. Big year for Jonathan Majors, who was in this film. He was uh, he was David, the son. Yeah. And he was also in Lovecraft Country. And he was cast as a villain in an upcoming Marvel film. Ooh. Uh, Kang the Conqueror in the next Ant-Man movie. But that's kind of a role. He's like Thanos, but for time travel. That's a massive oversimplification. <laughs> but um, he's probably going to be in multiple movies. So it's cool that, you know, to watch him kind of toward the beginning of his career uh, rising up. and Yeah, I mean, to... To try to put a bow, I guess, on, you know, I, I, I feel like it's appropriate to end this type of thing with like either a recommendation or a summarization of some kind. And, you know, my thought on that would be I recommend it if you think you're going to be able to kind of process the film for what it is mm-hmm. and appreciate, you know, kind of some of the more niche and slow burn elements of it. Like, if you're going to watch it and get bored in the first hour because, you know, it starts kind of slow, it's a little bit slice of life at the beginning, you know, if if that's the type of viewer that you are, then, you know, I might not recommend that film to you. Not because you're incapable of appreciating it or whatever, not any gatekeeping or elitism like that, but just you might not enjoy it and you also might not get out of it what I think Spike Lee wanted people to get out of it. And I think that's important. Mm Mm-hmm. So I liked it. <laughs> I'm not going to say I enjoyed my whole watch. I think it was worth it. And there were very good moments, mm. but it's, it's hard for me to say on the whole that it was just like, yeah, that was a very positive viewing experience. Cause it was, it was hard. It was a hard sit <laughs> to get through the whole thing. There's a lot of trauma that happens. There's a lot of very bad history and like a lot of very graphic, uh, depictions from, from Vietnam of right. atrocities I mean, the, done. The film to the people. itself is violent, but it also, shows images, you know, actual historical photos of people getting, you know, who were killed at My Lai and other such massacres. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's probably not more graphic than if you're a big, to go back earlier, Rambo fan or fan of action movies. It's it's not, yeah, among, gonna be fu- it's not be among the most violent movies you've ever seen. But it, it, it again, it's a testament to Spike Lee's uh, skills as a filmmaker that he can really he can play in this area with making actually really good action scenes. It's kind of like how Quentin Tarantino said of justifying some of his directing choices over the past couple of years. He said, man, you know, I can, I really think I could only be a good director if I can prove myself as a Western director. Right. (laughs) Or, or, uh, or even like earlier when he was like doing kill bill, it's like, I have to prove myself that I can do a lot of good action. I think there are a lot of directors who, can absolutely do good drama, but on some level, you know, they feel like they have to prove that. Yeah, I can, I can do action well as well. It's why we got Steven Spielberg doing an absolutely spectacular first 20 minutes of saving private Ryan. And then it just kind of, (laughs) okay, rest of the movie. But the fact that those 20 minutes, those first 20 minutes though, that's, that's what'll get them. There you go. It's what we'll remember. And you know, he's right. It's what we do. Remember. It's true. (laughs) Uh, I like the movie. 
yeah, it's worth worth your time. Absolutely. Anything else to say today? Ah, oh, geez. No, there's a supposed to be a winter storm coming in a few days, and I really hope it snows because I like snow. Uh, make yourself some hot chocolate, everyone. Stay warm. Do whatever else you do that makes you stay warm. I don't know. Hold the line. Don't sell the stocks. I don't know. I, uh, is that still happening? Are people still doing that? Buy stock in snow. Buy stock in snow. Unless you live in Florida. Snow then. coin. Snow coin. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Hunger Games podcast now. President Snow coin. There you go. All right. Have a good week. Bye.